0: Elizabeth Barrett is a wife, mother, grandmother, licensed marriage and family therapist, educator, eavesdropper, and emotion worker. And she uses all of these skills to address the subjects that we all grapple with in this conversation with the reluctant therapist. Happy Healthy Tuesday, Elizabeth. Happy Healthy Tuesday, Brad. Hey, where in the wide world of thought (laughs) are we headed off to today?
1: Well, yesterday... I came across an article, an NPR article, by the way, um, that really caught my eye, talking about um, marriages and families and uh, single parenting and... As I was reading the article, I kept thinking, oh, my goodness, this is going to ruffle a lot of feathers. <laughs> this, this is going to make a lot of people a little uncomfortable, but in in a very good way. The name of the book is called The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. And we're going to talk about that book and the article, but also a lot of other things that are true about our culture that people don't like to hear as being true. And so, you know, I teach at Cal Poly, and I teach family psychology. And so this is what, that's why I grabbed the article, because this is what I talk about every single day is how our families formed and functioning and what, you know, what does it take to be successful in our relationships. And whenever I bring in research that counters what my students believe to be true, they get really prickly. And defensive, and don't want to hear what I what I'm presenting. And interestingly, they will quite often say, "Well, I heard your statistics, but I don't agree with them, and so we'll just carry on the way we are." And so I look forward to bringing this uh, article into class because I think there's part of me that really enjoys seeing them get prickly and anxious <laughs> and, and, and feeling what we would say dissonance uh, because dissonance is the first sign that we're actually growing and maturing. And that's what our college education should be all about is growing and maturing and expanding our understanding of the world around us. And, and I want to highlight today's show with this statement – Everything we're going to talk about, there are going to be outlier experiences or people that will know that you'll believe prove this information to be wrong. But I want to remind you that they are outliers. And what makes someone an outlier is generally one thing, two things. One is luck, but two is the emotional maturity of the person participating in the behavior. In every aspect of our life as human beings, It is our level of social maturity, emotional maturity, social awareness that determines the quality of our life. Because there are a lot of people who numerically might be 60 years old who do not have the same emotional maturity as someone who is 16 and been through a lot and grown from those experiences. And so uh, we're going to talk about some social norms, some common behaviors that people participate in that they think is okay because everyone else is doing it, but really they aren't. And I hope you feel a little anxious or uncomfortable because of it. And think about why is it that we as a people, as a culture, in our communities, in our families, participate in behaviors that do not serve us. Even when they aren't serving us, we continue to participate in them because everyone else is. And also, once we have the information that shows us that this behavior is no longer serving us, why do we go back? So those are the things I'm kind of interested in, is one, talking about these behaviors. The other one is why, once we know they're not working, do we continue doing them? And three, a little bit of how do we help people to develop social, emotional maturity in such a way that they can make choices that actually support their mental health and well-being. So just as a little teaser, here are some of the common practices that we have in society today that do not serve us in any real profound way. The first one is uh, use of social media. That's just like shooting fish in a barrel. It's just (laughs) so obvious. But yes, our addiction, cultural addiction to Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and Snapchat and all the social media apps that keep appearing – even though there is mounting research that shows that these things are not good for our collective mental health and well-being, people continue to participate in vast, vast numbers and have what they believe are solid arguments or beliefs as to why they're okay. Another would be our rising social, um, our rising social, I don't know, habit. I don't know if that's correct. Uh, norm around cohabitation prior to or before marriage. And you even raised your eyebrows. There's an overwhelming belief that cohabitation before marriage is a great way to, you know, predict the success of that relationship or that cohabitation itself is actually a good alternative to marriage altogether because that belief is that marriage as an institution is dead.
0: It isn't? No.
1: A third common social practice that is not in our best interest is the culture, sexual hookup culture, which happens primarily on college campuses, but it's also out in the general community of those that are unmarried um, and wanting to connect with others. And so this practice of hookup culture, which for those who don't know, um, is connecting with a stranger for sexual intercourse with no emotional attachment, and then moving on the next day. In our day, we would have called it a one-night stand. Right, right. Uh, but today it is called hookup culture or a hookup. and there's a lot of other pieces that go into that. And the belief again is that hookup culture is great because it doesn't have the emotional commitment. It's a way of showing our sexual uh, empowerment and liberation as women and, and as young men. and that's it's how we meet and make our social connections. So that is false. And we'll talk about why. Uh, and along with that is blackout drinking, which goes along with the hookup culture. And then the last one that we're going to – well, we might throw in a little bit about porn too, which is another common social <laughs> norm that people have come to normalize in many aspects of, of society. And we talk about it freely as if it's watching cartoons. <clears throat> um, but there's research that shows no porn is not our friend, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then we're going to start off uh, the conversation talking about this art, this book, and uh, this idea that single parenting or you know m- women having children without a partner is a great alternative to being strapped to a marriage, and and that is not true.
0: Wow. (laughs) You're, you're, you're covering a lot of ground here today and uh, I can absolutely see a, a dynamic hour ahead. For well, us, I right?
1: hope so. Yeah. And some dissonance and some prickly feelings and ruffled feathers because that's how we grow.
0: I'm already ruffled <laughs> but uh, you know that, that is how we grow.
1: That is how we grow. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett and you can be part of the conversation by giving us a call today at 805-781-3875. That is the number to talk speak directly to me. 805-781-3875. You can also connect by visiting our Instagram or Facebook pages, and you can leave a message there. Or if you'd like to send me an email after the show to elizabeth at Therapist.com. we can also connect in that way. And if you're curious and would like to listen to previous shows, you can visit kcbx.org and look under the News Talk tab. I think that's where we are still. All of the shows from the last 12 years are there for your perusal. And if you'd like to podcast the show... Go to wherever it is you find your podcast, search for a conversation with a reluctant therapist, hit subscribe, leave a review. That would be great. And the show will be available to listen to your convenience. So we are going down the path of uh, common myths for the next hour. We're going to take a quick break and continue the conversation. You're listening to Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX.
2: You're a part-time lover and a full-time friend. The monkey on your back is the latest trend. I don't see what anyone can see in anyone else but you. I'll kiss you. you on the brain in the shadow of the train kiss you all starry-eyed my body swinging from side to side i don't see what anyone can see in anyone else but here is the church and here is the steeple we sure are cute for two ugly people i don't see what anyone can see in anyone else
1: but I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. Thank you for tuning in today. Um, let's start off talking about the book <clears throat> that I heard about during an NPR story yesterday, uh, The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. The premise of this book written by Melissa Kearney, and she's an economist, not a psychotherapist. I tried to pull my research away from the world of psychology because uh, oftentimes people roll their eyes or are a little suspicious of research that comes out of the psychological field because it tends to be super progressive and you know maybe a little skewed uh, to being more permissive than general society actually is. And that's something that's really important to understand is that, one, research – especially social science research, research tends to you know, look towards the progressive edges of things. But there's also research that looks from the conservative edge of things. And so depending on what your, your worldview is, your belief system is, you're going to kind of skew your research and what your target demographic is um, to wherever your belief system lies. It's, it's, it's not just numbers.
0: Eighty-seven percent of all people know that, right? <laughs> I just made that number Thank up, you. But, it, but it's but a it's, meaningful number to me.
1: It's yeah, but it's and it's not that bad. I, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to minimize social science, but what I'm saying is that I wanted to look outside of the social science research and look at different um, areas of research, also because we see. That the quality of life of individuals, how we create our lives, build our families, build our relationships, impacts us not just in our mental health, but also the economics of the country, how well we survive as a civilization. Um, another one of the articles I pulled from The Wall Street Journal, which also looks from the economic aspect. So I thought let's let's look from the pragmatic just numbers piece of this and not as much the social science and see where we go. So Melissa Kearney, who wrote the book is an economist. And her argument goes against uh, a trend that's happening in the United States right now, uh, that American children are increasingly being born and raised by single mothers. The United States has the largest, highest rate of children living in single-parent households anywhere in the world, according to um, Pew Research that was done in 2019. So that means that almost a quarter, like 23%, of U.S. children under the age of 18 live with one parent and no other adults. And in her research, just numbers, she found that this arrangement actually hurts children in the long run, it increases and widens the inequalities in our society, and then ultimately damages society because you have children being raised who are already falling behind economically, socially, uh, environmentally, because they don't have the benefits of a two-parent household. Um, One of her arguments is that children who grow up in a single-parent home in an unmarried household, they fight just statistically the odds of being able to graduate from high school, uh, getting into college, uh, having high earnings in adulthood, and they are substantially more likely to also end up being a single parent or raising a child on their own. Kearney's book notes that families that are headed by a single mother are five times more likely to live in poverty than families headed by a married couple. She says it's simple math, having two adults in the home can bring an in income, lessen the chance that the family is poor, and make sure that the children have the attention and care that they need emotionally and socially as well uh, it's very difficult, Kearney says for any one parent to meet all of the needs of their children, money, time, emotional energy, and more and so the The book goes on with more arguments you know for a two-parent household. But the part that I wanted to really focus on is the marriage piece because she's saying specifically in the book that it's a married couple raising children that do well, not two single people raising the children, but it's something about that relationship, that commitment, that contract of marriage that helps to support uh, the well-being of children. Even though marriage rates have... Substantially declined in society over the last 60 years. Um, In the United States, around 50 to 60% of people will get married throughout their lifetime. Well, it's actually higher than that. Currently, 50 to 60% of adults are married. In our lifetime, 80% will end up getting married, but at any one time, it's only 50 to 60% because of divorce or death. And a side note away from this story is that when I, my casual research, I teach primarily young women and I ask them every quarter, all three of my classes, how many of you plan on getting married and having children someday? And across the board, almost 90, 99% of them raise their hand and say yes. Now, granted, these are psychology and child development majors. So that makes sense because they're drawn into this work. But I also, as a sideline, give talks to the fraternities on campus. And so those are young men from all different majors and different backgrounds. And I ask them the same thing. How many of you are expecting that you'll get married and have children? And across the board, almost every single one of them will raise their hands. Now, what's interesting that statistically, they won't, that many won't get married. But because they are going to be college educated, um, that gives them a leg up around marriage that most people in the general population don't have. Because one of the other things that um, Kearney talks about in the book is that there is this privilege, not only of a two-parent household, but those who have a college education and access to more economic resources tend to have more successful marriages and therefore tend to want to be married and stay together. So when we look at the whole dilemma of marriage and marriage rates, marriage itself has become a privilege because those who do well tend to already have a leg up in society, higher access to education and to uh, medical care and to economic opportunities. Now, along with that as well is the idea of divorce and the number of divorces because, you know, in the book, Kearney, Melissa um, Kearney is talking about how uh, a lot of people pushed back against her saying, well, you can't just say, you know, it's got to be a marriage because marriages fail at 50% rates and, you know, so many couples are cohabitating now and, you know, that works just as well. But statistically, that is, that is not true. <laughs> divorce rates also fall in an economic scale that when you see a 50% divorce rate, um, it's not accurate. If you look at people who get married over the age of 25, who have a college education and have known their partner for more than 36 months, their divorce rate overall is 19%. When you have people that get married and they have some college and are over the age of 25, the divorce rate is 35%. You get in the big numbers when you have people that have no college education, maybe not even graduate from high school, get married under the age of 25, and their divorce rate is 51%. And so when you throw that all together, the overall divorce rate is actually 39%. But you see this disparity that the people that actually would benefit most from a contract of marriage or the institution of marriage are the ones that are having least success staying married. And so when I look at this argument about single mothers as opposed to a married couple having children, I think the underlying argument is that we don't value the institution or the opportunities or the security of marriage uh, as a viable way of living. We don't teach young people how to communicate, how to be in relationships, or how to stay together if their marriage is starting to falter. We don't provide those resources readily to anyone. So again, you see that inequity because someone with a higher income might have more access to getting couples counseling or you know finding uh, ways to work things out. They also don't have the financial stress that someone like in a lower economic uh, situation does. So there is this hammering down the idea that partnered couples uh, – tend to do better in raising children, but it's not just because single parents aren't capable or able, it's just that from the start, a single parent doesn't have the opportunities or the economic resources. And the highest number of single mothers tend to be from Black and Latino families. Um, They have less wealth to start out with than their white counterparts, according uh, to the research. So... That's the, first, that's the first way of looking at a common social norm because there are more and more young women who are choosing to have children without a partner. One last piece about the book was fascinating was that when you look at why women are choosing not to have partners when they have children is because right after the 2008 crash and so many men Two thirds of those who lost their jobs were men. A lot of those jobs did not come back. They still haven't come back. For a lot of women, since you know the late '70s, they've moved into the workforce. And after the 2008 recession, most of the jobs that came back were for women. And so, for many women, when they're looking at their options of who to partner with, it becomes more of a seems like a financial risk to marry a guy who isn't working or isn't contributing than to just do it on their own. And that brings up a whole nother social conversation about how we are raising young men and what kind of models do they have for success. And again, not to keep hammering home on the single women, but if over half of our children are being raised by single women without a man in the house, without that kind of support or modeling of of what it is to participate and contribute as a man, then we can see statistically that these young men are coming up in society with rudderless,
0: they're not really uh, maturing either. I mean, we, well, it goes
1: back to the emotional maturity piece I said at right. the beginning, and we're How we're seeing a,
0: we're seeing a lot of uh, you know emotionally stunted, what I term to be manchild, who who <laughs> are not really prepared. Uh, by their society to become a, a, a good partner uh, in society or have the opportunities.
1: It's a dilemma. If you're just tuning in, this is a conversation with a the reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and our number is 805-781-3875. So to address some of the other common uh, social norms that aren't in the best interest of the people that are participating in it, I have roped in my intern for this quarter, Gabe. Hello, Gabe. Hello, everybody. All right. And so we have a list of common social norms or behaviors that people participate in and the beliefs or reasons why people believe they're a good choice in general, those who participate. All right. Let's start with um, cohabitation because this always makes my students sweaty and nervous because so many of them are already living with their partners. And the whole idea of cohabitation has increased by 600% since the 1960s. Um, More people cohabitate uh, than are getting married. More people cohabitate before marriage than ever before in history. Um, So, Gabe, read belief number one as to why cohabitation is a good idea.
2: We'll get to know all sides of the person. Practice marriage.
1: Okay. So when you move in with someone, you're on your best behavior. Unless you've sat down and written some sort of doctrine of why we're moving in together, a timeline, here's how long we're going to do this, my intention is to get married at the end, or my intention is just to live together. You you have to have that hard conversation before you move in together in order to really feel like it's a practice marriage. Most people don't have that conversation. Most people slide into cohabitation, which means, hey, my lease is up. We've been together for a few months. Come on and let's move in. Um, And so without any of those parameters, one person of the couple generally – believes that it's going to lead to marriage and is heartily disappointed when it does not. Um, The person who hopes that it's going to move to marriage is going to be on their best behavior. They're going to be like the perfect spouse and always trying to make things nice. And the other partner who is just like, hey, I'm just cohabitating and I'm not married, so I don't owe you anything, might not be on their best behavior because they're not fully vested, right? They're not making long-term plans with their partner. And so they tend to not Show up in the way they would in a marriage. So, what happens is that when we move in, think we're getting to know all sides of the person. When we, if this couple decides to get married, they're heartily surprised when the person who was on their best behavior, wanting to be the perfect spouse, now stops. Doing all of the cooking, cleaning, and making things nicer. And the person who said, Oh, I'm just, you know, I'll get fully vested after we move in is heartily surprised at how much more they have to do to be in a healthy, committed relationship. Because once you get married, you can't bail as you can in cohabitation. All right, belief two
2: It's better not to commingle money.
1: Yeah. So interestingly, Couples that are married who co-mingle their money – and this goes back to an article uh, that was in the Wall Street Journal that may also surprise and disappoint people. Uh, The article says married couples are four times as wealthy as unmarried couples who just live together and cohabitate. So we'll take the cohabitation off of the social-emotional parts of getting hurt and go just to the financial parts. Four times as wealthy as unmarried couples. And one of the reasons is because married couples tend to be planning together for their future and they're putting their money together and they make more interest off of that but also they tend to be better at saving because they're both moving towards a common goal couples who cohabitate and don't commingle their money or married couples who don't commingle tend to not have that that same financial focus and so they both are wanting to spend their own money on their own things um Which also goes along to how deeply committed or not committed the couple is because if you are keeping your money completely separate, then you don't really have that common goal as a couple. So that was one of the things that the Wall Street Journal article talked about um, was the idea of commingling money and how those couples tend to do better. Belief number three?
2: Marriage is an outdated institution.
1: Yeah. Okay. So – there's a lot of reasons that marriage might look like an outdated institution because originally it was about chattel and ownership of the woman and the children and handing someone over with their dowry. We get that. Um, there have been lots of changes socially from traditional marriages that we saw you know, prior to the 1970s where the man was the breadwinner and the woman was the stay-at-home uh, emotion worker and it felt very – Uh, controlling and oppressive. We actually had head of household laws in this country, which allowed men to force their wives into institutions or take medications uh, for mental health issues. So yes, I can see a lot of ways that marriage has been troublesome. But Also, those who are married tend to live longer, report happier, more um, satisfying sex lives, tend to save more money, have healthier community involvement. And so for all of the ways there have been negative connotations or negative experiences around marriage, for those who are successful in their marriages, they reap much higher benefits than those who are single or just cohabitating. And it goes back to what I said earlier, all about education, how we teach and model marriage determines the success of what a long-term marriage looks like. You know, for many young people, they did not grow up in a home that models a successful marriage. And it's very difficult to be able to do something well that you've never seen done well before. And, and that's, you know, beside from the outdated institution, I think, belief or excuse or myth – Um, That's held up by people who don't really understand the benefits of marriage. We should be focusing on what are the skills that are needed to help people be successful in creating a contract with another human being to pool their resources and raise a family. And that's a whole other show to talk about all of the myths around why it is that we get married. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. I'm here with my intern, Gabe, and uh, we're busting some myths and beliefs that people have about social norms that really aren't in the best interest of the people participating. We've talked a bit about single parenting or single mothers. We've talked a little bit about cohabitation, and we're going to come back. We're going to talk about hookup culture and the use of social media. If you'd like to be part of our conversation, the number is 805-781-3875. You're listening to Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. Guess it's true I'm not good at all, night understand. But I still need love because I'm just
0: a man. These nights never seem to go to bed.
1: This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, We're talking about social norms that many people participate in, social uh, relationships that many people participate in that are socially accepted, but maybe not in the best interest, maybe are not in the best interest of the participants, even though so many people uh, think it's okay. So I want to go back to cohabitation beliefs again that we're going to. Get to know all sides, and it's a good practice for marriage. There's a couple other statistics that are important about this. One, more couples who cohabitated before marriage get divorced than couples who did not cohabitate before marriage. Now, there's a couple reasons why. One, many people who cohabitate before marriage don't have a strong religious foundation or belief system around uh, cohabitation, so they also tend to be less likely to feel strongly about whether or not they would get divorced. And couples who tend to get uh, married without cohabitating often come from a stronger religious foundation that also would not permit or want lead to divorce, but statistically, those who cohabitate before marriage have a higher rate of divorce. The other part is that couples quite often end up getting married who should have broken up, and that 's the biggest dilemma of cohabitation is that once you 've moved in with someone and you 've commingled your record collection or your Items, your furniture, or you've taken on a lease, or God forbid you've bought a house, or really, God forbid, you've done what, Gabe? Got a dog. Got a dog. Then you really are locked into that relationship. And when you feel like you need to go where that relationship's run its course, you're so deep in it, you can't get out. And so many couples are like, well, I guess we get married now. I guess that's the next step. But had they not moved in and got the dog, or taken on a lease together, they probably would have just broken up and gone their separate ways. And that's one of the biggest uh, conundrums around cohabitation is that people don't go into it intentionally with a plan and a framework and an agreement with the person they're moving in with as to how it's going to work. Like who's going to pay the lease if we break up? Who gets the dog if we break up? But again, most people don't have those conversations. They just love the idea of playing marriage without the responsibilities that go with it. Our number is 805-781-3875. And Courtney, thanks for calling. What's on your mind today? Hi, thanks for taking my call.
3: Um, I was, I'm was i kind of going back to when you were talking about single moms mm-hmm. and how theres it's a problem because there's no male role model in yes. the home. And I think that there wasn't a lot of nuance in that conversation that you were having. Um, and I'm curious for... Well, one, I'm curious if you have the data on how many people are choo- – the women who are choosing to be single moms, are they more college-educated? Are they the high school dropouts? Mm-hmm. Because that makes the difference. But two, I think to add some nuances, some single parents do have grandparents and men who are wonderful role models. But also, there, is, is it not – can it not also be that a, a single mother – May, perhaps prepares a son better than having a man in the home who could you know be a, a you know have domestic violence issues okay. or you know something like that I know that's an extreme example and I don't mean it as an extreme example but I think can a mother not teach a son how to better treat a woman or how to, what it means to be a man and and that's Controversial in and of itself. <laughs> it is. Well, I, I, I think that I feel like your conversation wasn't as nuanced as it could be.
1: That's fair. And so let me answer a couple things um, because I didn't want to just read straight from the article. And so I was picking some pieces out. And so, but um, I want to get to the question of one. What she was talking about as an economist, she was looking as, at marriage as a long-term contract between two individuals to pool their resources. And having two parents is better than one, and it didn't matter what the gender of the parents were. That was irrelevant in the research, okay. that side of it. The other part was about the men and who is doing this. And one of the things she also found is that most of the single women did not have other adults in their lives helping them to parent. So that's an outlier that there is a supportive group that's helping. And also, that most of the single women I don't, I'm looking desperately for the actual number, but the majority of single mothers who uh, are having children without a partner come from lower socioeconomic situations, which already puts them closer to the poverty line than yeah. single women, right, who are college educated and have more access to resources. So we're looking at kind of the overall statistical numbers. Um, And again, there's the outliers who do well, but the larger number that, you know, we young men who grow up in houses without fathers have a higher rate of spending time in jail and having economic insecurity. Um, So, yes, Yes, I think
3: that would absolutely depend on the the area, the socioeconomic conditions. But I do think a lot of women I know.
1: That's outliers.
3: in my 40s, are raising wonderful men.
1: And again, but as I said at the start of the show. Maybe
3: I'm just saying that should be acknowledged. Yes. In the conversation. Maybe they're outliers, definitely, but that there is the nuance for a woman to be a wonderful role model for a son without a man in the house necessarily. And I would even actually think that if you're in a lower socioeconomic group, that man might not be the most educated, up on parenting skills, you know, how to talk down, de-escalate, all that kind of stuff I, that a more educated group would get. And that, I don't want that to be controversial, and I think that does sound controversial, but no, I think you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, I do, and I, and I don't think it's controversial. I think what I'm trying to project is more of a less emotional and more pragmatic conversation that statistically numerically yes there are outliers who might be doing a good job but they are so small in comparison to the amount of children that are growing up in homes that aren't functioning well and they tend to primarily be single mothers who don't have good experiences with men and don't have the you know the model themselves to raise young men so just unemotionally numbers only that's the situation that impacts society as a whole and so that's the reason i brought up today is that we you know we tend to believe that anyone can do it and i'd love to do another show courtney and maybe you want to send a friend on because i think there'd be a great conversation about who best to raise young men because i i'm watching my intern Gabe sit next to me as you talk about you know women being great at raising men on their own and um we've had many conversations about that in class so i think i think that's another whole great conversation to have in the future
3: yeah i really appreciate it it was just something that was when i was listening i was like wait <laughs> i feel like there's more nuance here there is um, and i appreciate you taking my call and always of course i mean i love statistics but <laughs> i have a hard time looking at i mean especially when you're talking about parenting it's hard to separate the emotional i agree from the statistics
1: I agree 100%, which is why at the start I said, I'm, I'm reading you statistical information from an economist and from the Wall Street Journal on purpose. So we remove the emotional part and just we have to look at the numbers sometimes to see how we can do better. And that's really my goal always. How do we do better for the most people? Yeah. yeah. I appreciate it. I love your show. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks for calling. Have a good day. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist, and all right, we finished up with cohab there, Gabe. Let's mm-hmm. talk about another norm that has become very common on college campuses, and that's the hookup culture. What is belief number one about why hookup culture is beneficial?
2: It's empowering for women.
1: Okay. I don't know, we shouldn't have started with the most controversial one first, but all right. So the idea of hookup culture is that we can be sexual, express ourselves sexually with anyone we choose, in in any type or form that we want to, and that it's connected to somehow women's liberation. So I'm using research from Dr. Lisa Wade's book, American Hookup, that uh, looked at hookup culture on college campuses all across the country. And flat out, one of the first things in her book, she says, hookup culture is not liberation. Um, Saying yes to sex is not liberation. Women tend to take all of the risk and get none of the pleasure in a hookup experience. Statistically, less than 10% of women have orgasms in a hookup experience, and 85% of the men do, and that's in a heterosexual hookup. There are same-sex hookups as well, I don't have the same statistics, so I'm looking at Dr. Lisa Wade's book. Um, But there's also the high risk of STIs and STDs. There's also the side effect that you can feel it's a liberated move to be sexual whenever you want to. But that is not liberation because that is women actually behaving sexually the way men do and seeing that as somehow equality. And Dr. Wade said really equality is when women get to express themselves sexually in a way that benefits them and not just by – becoming part of the patriarchal sexual structure so it does not really empower women at the end of the day although it might look like that belief number two
2: it's easier than dating is that true no
1: so according to dr wade's book a lot of people say it's much easier just to hook up with someone because then you don't have to worry about calling them or texting them or how to hang out with them and so they um decide that hookups gonna be easier. The problem is no sexual encounter is benign or neutral. You know, when you experience a sexual relationship or not even just a sexual intercourse with someone, you release vasopressin and oxytocin and those bonding hormones and it becomes some sort of uh, mutual experience that is not neutral. And that is why the other dangerous part of the hookup culture is that it goes hand in hand with drinking with blackout drinking quite often, but drinking heavily because that reduces inhibitions and then people are able to hook up without repercussions. But then the next day when people sober up, that's when a lot of the guilt and shame and embarrassment comes up. And so there's very little talk about um, those post-hookup experiences. Again, because everybody is seemingly doing it, so no one wants to say how much they dislike it and run the risk of being socially ostracized. 805-781-3875 is our number. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. And Ben, thanks for calling. Sure,
4: great program. Um, And I'm calling from Oakland. I stream KCVX all the time. And uh, I too, I read the article. I didn't read the book, but I read the article. I thought it was really interesting. And the thing that jumped out at me was it was saying that a lot of um, getting back to the marriage thing and why more people aren't getting married. It, and I'm paraphrasing, and I may not get it entirely accurate, but um, that a lot of women are, look at men and their potential for um, being good providers, and are, and have decided they're not a good bet. Yeah, and are, and are not marrying because um, they just don't think that they can. That the men can really help out around the household and be good providers, and I think it reflects on the difficulty men are having um, in the last few decades of navigating the big changes in our culture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've we've seen real declining incomes with men, and it has a lot of repercussions. We see the, you know, just including in our politics, where there's the whole politics of grievance and all that. And I think it just points to the need to really support men in helping them navigate the big seismic changes in our culture. And that's it.
1: Now, Ben, thank you for calling and sharing that, and do you feel that, too, that change it, it, as a man in society?
4: Well, sure. I, I mean, I've been very fortunate. You know, in my family, I had very good modeling, um, of a, a successful uh, marriage with my parents, and I, I'm married, I've been married, still married for 27 years, and my wife had good modeling, and her family and her parents are still together, and... um but yeah i mean i see the changes i see all around me um so many men um i mean i've managed to navigate you know very well um and i'm getting nearing retirement but um but i do see that so many men have had such difficulty navigating and i actually helped um, administer a, a, a small scholarship program for um, students and uh, for low-income students and many, many of the young men are from single-parent households and just have t- tremendous difficulty in, in navigating these huge cultural shifts in terms of the roles of men and women. Yeah. And it's just a really big, huge problem that we're really not addressing. And I think the book are, really raises some important issues.
1: Yeah, and the book that you and I our referencing is written by Melissa Kearney. It's called The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. Ben, thanks very much for taking the time to call and listening from up in Oakland. We appreciate you. Great
4: program. Bye. Thank
1: you. And, you know, one of the other challenges in society right now is that we are revolutionizing the way we look at gender and sexual orientation, how we talk about it. And so sometimes it can feel like landmines to talk about men and women and their relationships because we don't want to have people feel not included or excluded from the conversation if they don't identify um, that gender or that sexual orientation. But 85% of the population does identify as heterosexual and through their gender as male or female. And when we are too nervous to talk about it specifically, that's what I think hurts young men, is because there's very few direct conversations about a young man who identifies as a male heterosexual in society. And, and that's challenging because then where did they get that information and how did they you know how do we reimagine the role of men the other piece when it comes to marriage and relationships is that we as a society do not like to admit that part of our not part of a great part of our life work is choosing our mate And again, if the vast majority of my students are raising their hands saying, yes, I want to get married and have children, but they don't end up getting married and have children, it's because they did not learn how to create those relationships. They were not encouraged to value those relationships. You know, a whole other show is about being a workist culture. We teach young people to see their value in their work and not in their relationships. And so if we don't teach people how to succeed in relationships, then we shouldn't be surprised when they don't. And young men are starting to realize in this culture in this generation that as a potential mate you have to bring something to the table and I know that people just oh hair on the back of their neck stands up it's like don't make it sound so cold about mating but it is mate selection is huge the marriages that are most intentional are the most successful and as Ben pointed out people who have successful marriages tend to come from parents who had successful marriages it becomes a pattern of behaviors all right Where were we, Gabe? We were talking about hookup culture.
2: Belief number three, Mm -hmm. everyone enjoys it.
1: Yes. So the last thing about hookup culture is no, only 15% of those who participate in hookup culture enjoy it, and they tend to be white, heterosexual, fraternity men who tend to be good-looking, and... They dominate the the discourse on college campuses. 85% of the people don't enjoy it, but they do participate because they feel like it's the only way that they can be socially involved. But also, for a large part of the college population, it tends to be minority students or first-gen students or students from lower socioeconomic status who have come to college because they are there to change the course of their families' lives, and they take it very seriously. They don't participate often at all in hookup culture because it goes... Against their values, and it does not represent what they're at college to do, and so they end up feeling excluded from a lot of the social activities at college because of the domination of hookup culture. And it also leads to, again, the whole idea of the amount of alcohol that is consumed on college campuses and those behaviors as well. All right, this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. Our number is 805 781 3875. So the next social norm, the one we've been saving, that kind of impacts all of these is our belief that social media is enhancing our experience uh, as human beings. So, Gay, what's uh, belief number one? It connects me to friends. Okay. So for the last 10 years, I have assigned my students uh, technology fast. It used to be going without their phone for 24 hours, but that really became impossible. And so I settled for having them delete their social media apps uh, for two weeks and that became impossible (laughs) and they would just fall apart and couldn't cope. And so I went down to two days um, and So many students were just lying in their papers. I could tell that they hadn't really done it, that it started to seem like a stupid assignment. And also for the students who did actually participate, so many of them would say, I just sat in my room and waited for the fast to be over because I didn't know what to do. And that was so concerning to me because part of the reason I assign the social media cleanse is so that students would see how many other things they could actually do with their life, aside from look at what other people are doing with their life. And so this quarter, I've instituted a new assignment called something new. Because if the goal of my assignment was to get students to see they could have an experience outside of their phone, I needed to push them to actually do something. And it's been amazing. Five weeks into it, the amount of students who have written in their check-ins about what they're doing uh, is makes me want to assign this to the entire campus and to every listener I have because the students are saying I would have never done whatever it is gone taken a dance class or gone and seen the football game on campus or introduced myself to my neighbors and they're reporting making social connections that they've n- never would have taken on had they not gotten off their you know had the assignment to do something new so, that belief that we're connecting with friends really means that we're not connecting to what's happening socially around us. We're just placeholding. Um, there's this false sense of security or this belief. That if I talk to my parents or I text them 17 times a day or if I text my you know, long-distance boyfriend or girlfriend 20 times a day, we'll stay close and connected. But the statistics show that those relationships are really fragile, that if we believe we have to talk to someone all day long for the relationship to be healthy, those relationships tend to fold Or those are the relationships where students end up dropping out of school because they miss the boyfriend or they move in together because they feel like they need to stay connected. The idea of the social media really has created this false belief that we need to be in 24-7 contact with the people we care about in order to be okay. And then it prevents us from reaching out and finding other ways to enjoy our life, taking a, a dance class or learning to surf or playing tennis. Belief number two.
2: We follow positive feeds. Do you? Um. Now, I promised
1: you I wouldn't make you talk, but you've done the deletion twice with me.
2: Okay, yeah. And all I have to say is that the thing that got me most excited that you talked about in class, which has stuck with me, is when you talked about – go walk to your friend's house and knock on the door and just come in and don't text them, come unannounced and see what they're up to. And the feeling that I got from that instead of calling or Snapchatting or Instagramming them was something that I wish I could feel every day. I mean, and doing like something new, I could be sitting on the couch and scrolling through TikTok or whatever, but I would just like go outside and invite my friends with me or record it on my camera People say when you're recording something like, hey, do it for the Snapchat. Well, I didn't have Snapchat, so I, it was a big joke of do it for the camera roll. <laughs> so everyone, it was, and the memories, we even look back, to remember that time and this, but, I and I got so used to putting my phone away and leaving it and going without it. And I mean, that was, it still is. I'm not on social media all the time. I use it to stay connected. Yeah, so you just, is,
1: I know, now you're uh, gonna have to turn it off because, yeah. I've proven you wrong. Right. But but that's interesting because when I have students find things to engage in none of them ever come back and say my social media was more satisfying uh, no. than hanging out with people in person. The
2: enjoyment that I have is beats anything than that, than just scrolling for 30 minutes.
1: Another one of the arguments is that I – students will say and people will say, I have social anxiety disorder and so I can't go out. This is the way I can connect without having to go out. And I have to keep reminding my students that social anxiety disorder is a cultural construct. It is not real. It is a disorder that was designed to allow people to get medications in the DSM. That's a whole other show. The only way you can heal social anxiety disorder, and it's one of the few anxieties that you can actually heal. The only way you can heal social anxiety disorder is to do what? Go
2: outside and be social. social. It's
1: the only way you get through it. And so this idea of having social media actually hinders the mental health and healing for people who feel socially anxious because it gives them this – this fantasy that they're connected to others, but they're never really being socially engaged. And the less we socially engage, the more anxious we become. All right. Belief number three.
2: I learn new information and keep up with the news.
1: So this goes for everyone who is getting their information from their Instagram feed or their TikTok feed is that you are being fed and curated information you already believe in. So it's never new. The algorithms are set up so that you're only hearing things that support what you already believe. And so nobody's getting any new information. They just keep feeding what it is they already think is important. So where do we go from here in our last, you know, minute of the show or minute or two? And I'm going to finish where I started the show today, which is the success we have as adult human beings is dependent upon our social and emotional maturity, our capacity to take responsibility for our lives, to accept when we've made errors and correct them, to be curious about being better in our relationships and improving our communication skills, to not blame others for the things that don't go well in our lives. Like That really is what separates adults from adolescents. Adolescents continue to blame others for their problems. And when we can raise a generation that has emotional maturity, that's when we start to see changes in these social norms because all of them would change if people had the understanding and self awareness that they are responsible for the successes in their lives. All right, Daniel, I'm going to fit you in real quick. What's your 30-second thought?
4: Okay. Yeah, so I'm a millennial. I gave up social media about three years ago. Good for you. And I think it's just um, one of those things that I never felt better. Um, and, yeah, you can put your phone for three hours, but as somebody raising kids that I feel like you can't generally do both at the same time, and that's where I kind of see the most benefit. Is, like thirty-eight years old, and I have two kids, and it just makes the time you spend with your children uh, more about spending time with them and less about trying to take a picture to show off.
1: Daniel, I have to cut you off, but I want to say I love you for calling and ending the show on that note because, yes, millennial parents, you are the problem. You're taking your social media habits from when you were a teenager and continuing them into adulthood, and you're now modeling disconnect with your children please get off your phones and be present with your children so that their future will be strong and they'll have a sense of what it is to be an adult because you modeled what it was to be fully alive and thriving this has been a conversation with a reluctant therapist i'm elizabeth barrett send me an email to elizabeth at the reluctant therapist.com follow us on facebook instagram leave me a message there as always thank you for tuning in and supporting central coast public radio kcbx